As Bruce would say, morning, everybody. Um, well, as you can see by the, the title of the slide, we are studying love today, and it's actually love part two, because we talked about it um, quite a bit last, actually it was the whole class last week, and I'm looking around, and I don't think that there's anybody in here except maybe Sharon and Jenna that was here last week. I think, all, oh, and Jan, of course. What's that? Oh, and Linda was here too? Okay, okay. Okay, never mind. It's just a terrible observation. Okay. So, um, so anyway, uh, we, we are going to talk about love. It's going to be, uh, we're going to kind of finish up that, um, uh, that attribute of God because, uh, you know, the big picture of the, of the class is we're studying systematic theology. And, of course, systematic theology is the study of God um, in categories of study um, and study of our interactions with God in categories of study. So we started um, talking, the, the first thing that we talked about was um, the, the doctrines of the Bible, um, the authority, the necessity, the clarity, and the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, then we talked about um, God himself, and we talked about uh, Christ, that's called Christology. And then we talked about, um, you know, we got some more stuff coming. We're still kind of in the, uh, in the, the theology proper, as you would say, because we're talking about the attributes of God. And an attribute of God is something, it's a characteristic of God that is um, essential to, to who he is. And so we've talked about grace. Uh, we've talked about uh, some of these other attributes like independence or aseity. We've talked about you know, omniscience and omnipresence and, and all that sort of thing. So with this one, of course, we're, we're talking about love. And um, last week I thought was a, a, great, um, a great interaction. And shortly we're going to um, kind of review what we talked about last week, which I think is really good since there's so many new people here this morning. And... Um, and then we'll get into some, some new stuff. So um, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you once again for this morning. Thank you for this uh, time to come together and study who you are, um, to get to know you just a little bit better. Uh, we ask that uh, what we learn here today not be just a, a matter of, uh, of head knowledge, that you actually um, cause the knowledge to, to penetrate our hearts, change our lives, and help us to understand who we're supposed to be uh, in glorifying you and glorifying your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We trust you. Help us to glorify you in everything that we do. For all these things, in the wonderful name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, so we're going to talk, talk about love. But first, I have a question. That's a good-looking guy there, isn't it? All right. His name is Ludwig Feuerbach. Who's heard of Ludwig Feuerbach. Anybody? No? Okay. So Ludwig Feuerbach was a German philosopher from the 19th century. Okay? Um, he was an atheist. So, you know, by definition, he, did, he didn't believe in God. But he had opinions about, or he had theories about, why people believe in God. Why you and I believe in God. And what he said was, uh, we all know 
that there is no God, but we are either too cowardly or too stupid to admit it. Okay, well, personally, I find that very, very offensive. But he went on, yeah, no. (laughs) But he went on to say that how this works is that we identify something that we admire. We identify something that's desirable. Like we see people helping other people. And we admire that. We call it love. And then what we do is take this love and blow it up and make it huge and then uh, personify it. One, one guy that was talking about, Lud, uh, about Feuerbach is he said, it's, it's like you project it onto the sky. And it becomes this supernatural, supernatural being. So what Feuerbach would say is that you and I don't so much believe in God, but what we do is we project what we want kind of out there onto reality and, um, and then bow down and worship um, our own ideas. So what he would say is that God was created in man's own image. Okay? Again, very, very offensive stuff. Okay? Well, Feuerbach, you may not have heard of him, but you've probably heard of a handful of people that he um, influenced very deeply. One would be Karl Marx. And so Karl Marx um, adopted what Feuerbach was saying, and basically when, when he um, was developing socialism, he had a lot of opinions about, about God, and he said that um, God was essentially wish fulfillment. And it's a way that we ignore our economic depravity by, by worshiping God. Okay? Another one would be Sigmund Freud. And so Sigmund Freud took Feuerbach's ideas and said that they're psychological projection, you know, typically has something to do with either sex or hating your father, okay? And so why am I bringing up Ludwig Feuerbach, this guy that says that, you know, you and I, we have all created God in our own image. Why would I bring him up? Well, my question is, well, Okay, so projecting our, our desires into the sky and call it God. My question is, does he have a point? I don't, nece- I don't mean, I'm not asking if we actually believe that God exists, because I think clearly we all do. I'll even say, I, I, I think that we all know that God exists. I think that's a clear biblical teaching. But my question is, the God that we worship have we, if not created him in our own image, have we changed him into our own image? Or if you prefer, you can you know, throw, throw this on somebody else and say, do they, um, do, does the world uh, create God in their own image? Yes, ma'am, you're the first one. Yeah, I think that we see this uh, sometimes that, Uh-huh. Our culture or in a particular church uh, get sort of highlighted in, in discussions of God or things that I think when you look at false gods, often people worship what they fear. Okay. Things that they fear and do not understand. Okay. Right? Weather systems, those sorts of things. 
Um, so I think that he he has a point that our inclination is to try and make God in our image because uh, it makes God a little less scary. Okay. It makes God a little less scary. Okay, good. good. I hope you all heard that because I'm going to have a really hard time explaining it all. Yeah, okay, good. Yes, sir. One of the dangers I see is that that people interpret Scripture based on what they want yep. to believe instead of letting Scripture determine what they believe. Okay, great. Good. I, I, I think you're both doing great. Yes? Oftentimes we have a tendency to treat God as though he's some sort of a cosmic genie. Mm-hmm. And we only go to him when we're asking for things like okay. grant my wishes to, to his point. Okay. So that's a trap we can fall into for sure. Absolutely. Treat him like the, God, the cosmic grandfather that, um, that just, you know, he, he doesn't discipline us, doesn't really expect anything else, anything from us, but he just is excited when we show up so he can give us money for ice cream. Right. Okay. Good. Good. Anybody else? No? Okay. Well, I just asked the question, do we create God in our own image? Sometimes we are not as overt as, you know, conjuring up a God that, 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 that we want to um, worship. But what we will do, we tend to do, and I think almost everybody is guilty of it, um, is overemphasizing certain elements of, of who God is, certain elements of of biblical teaching. And I think all three of them kind of kind of hit on that, right? So for example, one of the things that is very, very popular um, in, in the world today is that we will emphasize the love of God at the expense of pretty much everything else. We'll emphasize the love of God over his justice, over his holiness, over his wrath. A lot of people do that, okay? And so that's where, when we asked last week, and I think the question will come up again, what's the difference between the phrase God is love and the phrase love is God? God is love is biblical, and it's a beautiful teaching. The idea that love is God is something that's very, very damaging, blasphemous. Because what it does is it says, God is love, and God is only love, and there's no justice, there's no holiness, there's no anything else. And what we have to do is hold all of these, all of his attributes, everything that we learn about him in the Bible, everything that the Holy Spirit has, has prompted in our hearts, we have to hold all of them together. We can't pick and choose which parts of him we, we like. And some, sometimes, quite honestly, we don't like what we read. We don't like what we hear. But that doesn't matter. We're not God. Okay? So the question is, how do we respond when God says or does something that we don't like? And that's the key question. Do we try to mold God into our own image so that he's more palatable and more tasteful and less offensive? Or do we 
mold ourselves to conform to what it is that he's telling us, to who he actually is. Do we mold him to us, or do we let him mold us to him? Does it make sense? And so the idea is that when God says something um, that we, you know, says or does something that we don't like, and we love him anyway, what's the word for that? Trust, or more biblically, it would be faith. faith. That's what faith is. Faith has nothing to do with whether or not we believe that God exists. That is a mathematical certainty. And, but what faith is all about is trusting him, even we, when we don't understand what it is that we're doing or what he's doing. You know, so think about, for an example, when you're two or three or four years old, Jenny's cooking some, a batch of cookies, right? And there's like a two or three year old that comes up and wants to um, grab that cookie on the hot stove, right? And you might slap their hand or something, you know, no, don't, don't do that. Well, that, that kid doesn't understand why Jenny's being so mean right? They don't understand why Jenny would slap their hand or, or yell at them to say, no, get away from the hot stove, okay? But when that, when that kid, when that, that youngster uh, grows up and becomes more mature, they look back and they understand why Jenny was being so mean, because Jenny wasn't being mean. Jenny was actually loving that kid, and Jenny was doing something that was for that, that child's best interest, but that, that child just did not understand it. Well, we're all children. We're all that two- or three-year-old that wants the cookie. And God is the one saying, no, that's not what you need. That's not what's best for you. And that's not the way reality is. Okay? Does it make sense? Cool. Um, so faith, that's, I think that's that little story there is one of the reasons why, you know, Jesus said we need to have the faith of a child. You know, we need to, to trust, um, we need to trust God. So when we read scripture, and I, I, I tell you what, probably the best example is, uh, the, the narrative in, in Joshua, where God um, tells Joshua, tells the Israelites to wipe out Canaan. Every man, woman, child, every animal, everything. Right? The text is clear what God told them to do. What do we do? What do we do when we're talking to an unbeliever or a new Christian or something? We make excuses for God. We water that down, teachings like that down. We water down the hard teachings to make them more palatable. And when we do that, what we're doing is we are putting ourselves in the place of God in that we're determining what's good and evil. We're weighing God's actions and his mandates and his commands 
based on what we believe to be good and evil, based on our standard, not based on his. And when we do that, we are, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. Not a trick question, who were the first people to, to commit that sin? Adam and Eve. That was the sin in the garden. And that's the sin that every single human being that has ever walked the planet has committed ever since then. We want to put ourselves in the place of God. Okay? When, if we understand who he is, um, then we also understand how little we know. And I'm not trying to be disparaging or anything like that. I'm actually trying to be encouraging. Because God is great. And if we acknowledge that and worship him for that, as opposed to trying to make excuses for him, then life becomes, I'm not going to say it becomes easier, but it makes a whole lot more sense. Okay? Any questions so far? No? Good? All right, cool. So um, the reason I bring this concept up now is because as we're studying love, you know, the world goes crazy on this idea of, of love and teach that, or many people believe that love is, is God um, as opposed to God is love. Okay? Now, I, I will say, and something I should have mentioned a little while ago, there are some people that will take it the opposite direction. And they emphasize God's wrath and justice and holiness at the expense of his love and mercy and grace. And you know what? That's just as damaging and that's just as blasphemous and that's just as dangerous. You know, we, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. It's, 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 it's not who God is. God is all of the above, you know? All right. So now we'll begin our lesson now that we're 25 minutes in. So what is love? All right. In today's world, uh, love can mean different things in different contexts. And we went through these, and we talked about how there's a difference between um, the way a parent loves a child and the way a child loves a parent. Um, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, there's a radical difference there that it's, it's really kind of difficult to explain. There's uh, the infatuation that a teenager can have um, for you know, the first time they have a crush. Um, there's uh, the love of a friend. There's the love of uh, one spouse for another. Um, and then there's the love of like inanimate things or abstract things like songs, movies, cities, or, or kinds of food, you know. Um, so love can be used in different ways in different, different contexts. But most of the time, love is about the feelings of the lover, Okay, the emphasis is on if, 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 uh, if I say I fell in love, then honestly, 99 times out of 100, I met somebody who makes me feel good. And, you know, next week or next month or next year, I may fall out of love. You know, and, and so uh, that, that idea of love in today's world is very flippant. It's very capricious. It just kind of kind of bounces around, right? Fortunately, God's love is not like that. Um, 
Godly love is an unselfish, benevolent attitude toward the, the, the beloved. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's a willful... I think I'll say this next. It's a, godly love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. So, in essence, love is, is something that we decide to do. You know? It, or decide to... It, it's, it's a... Um, a mindset, it's an attitude. Um, it's not even so much a, a response, and it's not an, an emotion per se. Um, affection, it, it's not excluded, um, but it's not always necessary. You know, I, there can be uh, some person um, out on the street that you or I have never met in our entire lives. We have no idea who that person is. And maybe they have a flat tire or something, and we help them change their tire because we just want to help them change the tire. We see that they're in a bad spot, and we don't want them to be in a bad spot. We're, we're demonstrating love to that person. We're loving that person. Um, and so we don't necessarily have affection for that person. And as a matter of fact, it may even be somebody that we do know, but we don't like. You know? But we, we love them anyway. We... we um, show a benevolent um, actions toward them. And like I said, some people make it um, easy to love them. Um, others, not so much. And um, I'll tell you all the same thing I said last week. It's like one of the things I find at Trinity is y'all are really easy to love. Um, if you've never kind of, if you haven't ever had a crisis, you know, since we've been here, um, you know, as a, as a church, um, count your blessings, but what I will tell you is um, the way uh, this church responds to um, folks who are going through something uh, I, I, is amazing. It really is. I think, I think God moves in, in the congregation in a, in a wonderful way. Um, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you know, the love chapter, um, and we talked about kind of what love look, looks like, and it's patient and kind, um, that sort of thing. Um, but I wanted to highlight John 13. Um, Jesus is speaking to his, his disciples, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, um, if you have love for one another. Then the question I asked last week is, what is presumed here? If people are, um, people will know that we are Jesus's disciples by our love for one another. How do they know that we love one another? They have to what? To witness it. They have it has, to see it. It has to be something that becomes evident in action. Exactly. So it has to be something that becomes evident in action. So it's not just, hey, I've got these warm, fuzzy feelings for everybody, because the world doesn't see that. The world sees the actions when we live out our attitudes toward one another. Okay? That's the reason I, use, um, I tend to use attitude as opposed to emotion, because um, emotion is something, it's like a, I don't know, psychological response to something, right? It's kind of, you, you, you feel something. It's a me- mental feeling. Um, an attitude is, um, 
an act of the will and generally um, uh, is, is realized in action. So it's something that's uh, considerably more visible. Uh, the source of, source of our love for one another um, is God himself. So it's not like we're all capable of loving anybody in a godly way of our own devices. God is the source of that. And so I, I think probably every week since, um, since I've been teaching this class, I've used the, the illustration, pardon me, I, I, it's the best one I can think of. It's better than Ken's mirror analogy, but it's the, the sun. If we think of God as the sun and if we think of us as um, uh, the moon, you know, the moon in and of itself is a cradle-ridden, ugly, gray, dusty ball of dirt in the sky, right? Um, but when, God, uh, when um, the sun's rays reflect off of it, it's the, it's the stuff of poetry and song and, and romance, right? Becomes very beautiful, and very similarly, uh, we're that cradle-ridden, dusty ball of dirt. And when um, God, when we reflect God's glory, when we ref- reflect God's love, we become something um, that is um, beautiful, right? Uh, let's see. What does it mean that God is love? I think I pretty much explained that uh, at least well enough. Uh, one thing that God is love does not mean is that he is the most loving of all beings because that's the understatement, uh, greatest understatement of all time. Saying that God is the most loving of all beings is like saying water is the wettest of all substances. Okay, I mean, you know, think about that for a minute. It, water is not the wettest. Water is wet. It defines wetness. Um, God is not the most loving. He, he is love. Okay? So maybe a lame analogy, but I like it. And I can't help but think of Zoolander every time I say it. Nobody got that reference. You did? Okay. Just wasn't funny. Okay. Uh, let's see. We already talked about that. All right. Then we talked about hate last week. Um, hate's a strong ne- negative reaction and attitude towards someone considered an enemy. Sometimes hate can be used in a hyperbolic sense. For example, Luke 14, 26, when he says, um, you're not really my you know, disciples if you, um, uh, if you don't hate your brothers and sisters and mother and father and all of that. God doesn't want us to actually hate them. Um, he, he's just saying it's a, metaf- it's a hyperbole, an exaggeration. He's saying that um, we can't love them uh, as much as we love him. He has to be, you know, number one, no, um, have no other gods before me. Question, um, does God love the sinner but hate the sin? Um, well, the question I'll ask is, does he punish the sin or does he punish the sinner? Does murder go to hell or does the murderer go to hell? And if you look at Psalm 11, um, says uh, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then here in, in Psalm 5, it says um, God hates all evildoers. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, here's the thing. We get this messed up view of what hate is in that we 
we tend to think of hate as like wanting something bad to happen to somebody. Well, there's a difference. That's a generally a, a, a sinful view of what hate is. Um, it's our own imperfect, impure, sinful selves projecting that on God, just like Feuerbach would say, right? Um, when in reality, hate, God, God, God's hate, um, we can say that, but we need to be able to say that because it's very biblical, is um, he has a, a very negative reaction toward um, people. You know, if you think about, say, a child molester, does, does, does it make sense to hate child molestation but not have any um, problem with the child molester? No. It, it's, it's, um, one is an abstract idea. The other is actually a, an instance of that idea, a reality. Uh, we were God's enemies before we were reconciled. Romans 5, 5 talks about that. I'm sorry, I'm skipping forward. I didn't realize this recap would take so long. Let's see. God both loves... Actually, let me go to this one. Um, So this is God's attitude, by and large, towards his enemies. Okay? Um, The question I have is, does God always rain hellfire and brimstone down on, on his enemies? And no, here in Matthew 5, what he says is he's telling, Jesus is telling the disciples uh, that they must love their enemies. Because if you just love the friends, if you love, if you just love people like Trinity Bible Church, then what's the reward in that? That's no big deal. That's just a natural reaction, right? But if you love your enemies, if you show a benevolent attitude toward them, then you're, you're actually acting like the God who's in heaven, who brings, um, who brings the rain on the just and on the unjust. Okay? So God can count somebody as an enemy, but still show them love. Make sense? And that's what we're to do. We can still count people as enemies, but show them love. You know, um, folks who are preaching against the gospel of Jesus, whether they're Mormon or Muslim or Hindu or whatever, in reality, they are our enemies. But that does not mean that we, we hate on them. That, that does not mean that we don't love them. We bring the gospel to them in kindness and gentleness they're thirsty, we give them a drink of water. That's what we are called to do. No, let me rephrase that. That's what we're commanded to do. Okay? And so, um, so we have to get these ideas, our, our worldly ideas of love and hate, out of here and think more biblically and think, think more, more godly. Uh, And if you look at um, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, I think it's chapter 10, um, that's the whole point of the parable. The, the, the young man asked Jesus, he said, um, uh, you know, God said, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sorry, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, the young man responded, uh, well, who is your neighbor? 
And then Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And how does it begin? There's a Samaritan, um, I'm sorry, there was a, a Jewish man who was kind of laying in the gutter. He got beat up, you know. And you had the, the pious Jews that were just stepping over him. But the Samaritan came and, and cared for him, loved him, took him to a, um, an inn and, and paid for him and cared for him, right? And so the, the Samaritan and the Jew were enemies. Yeah, I mean, you can, get, you can think of as much hostility in our world as you, as you want to, um, and it doesn't compare to the, the, the hostility that the Jews had for the Samaritans. And the Samaritan demonstrated love. And the whole point of that parable is that everybody's your neighbor. And so you're to love everybody. If Hitler was here, Hitler was standing, you know, well, if we go back in time, was it 1944? We all walk into that bunker, and there's Hitler right there, and he's getting ready to allegedly kill himself, you know, but it's actually in Brazil. But, um, um, okay, well, I'm not asking you to kill him. I'm not asking you to kill him. That's okay, I'm but, but, but when, when you walk up, when you consider everything that, that he did, right, and he asks you the question, hey, I see you got a you know, cross around your neck or something, right? Um, who is this Jesus person? Do you give him the gospel? Right? Yeah, you desire yeah. his repentance and then you kill him. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Well, is he swine? Yeah. Well, well, okay, so let's go. I mean, until you talk to him yourself, though. You don't know. Throwing pearls before swine does not mean don't throw pearls before sinners, because we're all sinners. And so what, what, what you, the, the pearls before swine is you give anybody the gospel, but the moment that they be, they're rejecting it. Not, I'm not saying ask questions. I'm not saying wrestle with it, I'm saying reject it in a scoffing manner, that's why. And until, you, you know, because nobody in this room knows that Adolf Hitler ever heard the gospel. We don't know that. And so you, you give them the gospel, you demonstrate love, regardless of what they've done. When they begin to scoff, okay, now you're swine, we'll move on. Cool? All right. Good point, though. Um, all right, now we're getting to the lesson. 40 minutes in. Okay, so five ways that the Bible speaks about God's love. Um, now, I want to emphasize here, we're not talking about five different loves of God. We're talking about one love of God that, that looks different, okay? Okay. Um, and uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, and, and part of the reason for this is when we, what, what got me studying this years and years ago was I was talking to folks who would, when they evangelize, they would say, um, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That would be the opening phrase. You've probably heard that before. Does it come from C3? Uh, C3, Campus Crusade? No? You've heard it before, right? Okay. So God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, 
when I was entering my cage stage of, uh, of Calvinism, I um, would say, no, God hates sinners. You know, God, you know, you can't say that God loves them because you don't know if he does or not. And, um, and then I would, somewhere along the line, I came across the passages that said that while we were sinners, God loved us. And I'm going, oh my goodness, you know, I'm so confused. So then I read a book by D.A. Carson, who's probably my favorite living theologian. Um, Ken's not the only one that, that loves dead guys. Um, but uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And it's an amazing book. I absolutely love it. And one of the things, that because he, t- he talks about all kinds of issues, but one of the things he talked about, a particular chapter, he went into the five ways that, that um, the Bible speaks of God's love. And what I realized is you and I can talk about, you know, I love Stuart, but I love Jan in a radically different way. And I love my kids in another radically different way, right? Um. You know, and I love the somebody down the street in yet another way, okay? Um, we talk about our own love in different ways, in different contexts, but for some reason we tend to think of God's love in this monolithic way, like he has to love everybody in the same way. And honestly, that's, that's not biblical. It's biblical impoverishment. We can make it hard, or we can oversimplify it, both are a problem, but what we want to try to do is hit it right up the middle and say, okay, let's, let's look at how the Bible speaks about God's love. So the first one is um, intra-Trinitarian love. There's the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father from all eternity. This is love that is um, uh, untarnished by sin in any way. It's eternal, it's everlasting, it never, never goes away, never changes um, that sort of thing. It's one uh, perfect person, divine person, loving another. Um, John 17 in the upper room says, I'm sorry, Jesus says when he's in the upper room, John 17, Father, I desire that they also, meaning the disciples, whom you have given me, uh, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay. Um, there's other passages, but... Um, it's just, this is just a, even if this passage wasn't there, we would know that the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father for all eternity. Okay? So that's the first way, is this Trinitarian love. Second way is benevolent providence for all of creation. I'm not going to read the passage, but it's Matthew 6. I think you guys are all familiar with it. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't, don't fret about tomorrow, because tomorrow is going to fret for itself, Right? And the example that he gives is, is he's like, God takes care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. He takes care of them. And if he takes care of them, you know he's going to take care of you um, because you're even more valuable than them. Okay, So what God is doing with the lilies of the field and the birds of the air is he's showing benevolent provision for them. Okay, So that's the second way that, that um, the Bible talks about the love of God. It doesn't use the word love. But it's demonstrating love, right? The word doesn't always have to be there, but the the concept does. 
And this one is a good one. Uh, love for the, not just creation, but for the fallen world, the wicked world. So um, again, Matthew 5, I had this um, up a few minutes ago. What um, Jesus is saying here is that God loves his enemies, and specifically, um, you know, the unjust. He shows his love for the unjust. He, he brings rain on their crops. Um, we can also look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Okay? Now, when you hear, see that word world in the Gospel of John or any of the writings of John, uh, the Greek word behind it is cosmos. And, you know, as in cosmos, right? But the cosmos. And the idea there with John is that cosmos is not so much about the bigness of the world. As D.A. Carson would say, it's not so much about the bigness of the world as it is the badness of the world. Because if you look at the way that John talks about the world in his gospel and in his three letters and in Revelation, the world rejects Jesus. You know, you love the world and, you know, you don't love me, that sort of thing. Anyone who loves the world. And so the idea there is that um, the, the world or the cosmos is, is, is treated as wicked, okay? There's an em- emphasis there on, on moral decay, I guess you could say. So, so God has, uh, demonstrates his love in intra-Trinitarian intra- manner for all of creation and then for the fallen world. Un- and then the fourth way is unconditional love for the elect. So if we look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Kind of the doctrine behind that, the name of the doctrine, is called unconditional election. And what it means is God elected us not based on anything that we did. Okay? He loved us not because of anything uh, that we did in particular, but because he chose us. And we, we love him because he chose us. He doesn't love us because we chose him. I said that backwards, but I think you know what I meant. All right. Also, another good one is Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, where he's telling Israel, hey, look, you, you weren't anything special. I, I chose you because I love you, and I love you because I love you, right? So we have unconditional love for the elect, and then there's the conditional love for the elect. Now, the idea here is, is the unconditional love for the elect is you will never... To put it simply, you will never lose your salvation, right? You will, will, you will never lose your election. You can't ever forfeit um, God's love in that, in that way. The conditional love for the elect is more like um, fellowship. I was talking about children earlier, and the idea with, with children is you will have a love for your, your child that will never die. But sometimes you don't want to be around them. And 
because they're either acting up or they're, you know, whatever the case may be. And so that fellowship may be broken for a time. And that's a similar way that we have relationship that we have with God. Um, we, um, God will never stop loving us, but at the same time, that fellowship can be, can be broken. And so the idea there is, um, or Jesus said, um, if you keep my commandments, you will abide, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. It's talking about fellowship. Here's some other passages, Exodus 20, 1 John 1, 9, Jude 21. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, don't, don't, so let's start with like kids, right? And I don't want you to give away any secrets or anything, but I would imagine that um, you love your kids and there's nothing that they can do that, that will ever stop that, right? But sometimes they may misbehave, get on your nerves, you know, whatever the case may be. And it's like there, there's a, the relationship, and, and your kids may, may not be old enough, right? When, when they get older, that, that sort of thing occurs. So our, with our relationship with God, um, it's, it's a similar sort of thing. He, he always has us in his hand. He'll never let us go. We'll never perish, right? But that fellowship, and when I say fellowship, I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't um, dwell in us anymore. What I'm saying is that that fellowship is not manifested in the same way, right? So, um, I just don't understand the analogy of the earthly relationship with parents versus okay. spiritual presence of father who has, I don't, I don't understand how this verse says our fellowship is broken, I guess. Like, right. In what sense? Um. Yeah. Right. I think so. I, I think there is. But um, when you confess your sins, He's righteous and just to forgive our sins. Right. So does that mean that if we don't confess our sins, that He doesn't forgive our sins? Okay. So what does that verse mean? Right. First John one nine. What. What does it mean? If, if, so that verse has to mean something, that if we, because um, it says, if we confess our sins, he's righteous and just to forgive our sins. There has to be another side to that. What's that? No, it's not a salvation verse. It's, it's a fellowship verse. It means our fellowship with God, while we still are elect, we still have that eternal relationship, um, we... Uh, the fellowship can be disrupted for a time. Yes? Fred, do you think it's more that it's not that God's love is not there, but, but we're not accepting it? So it's because it says, you know, how we abide in his love, mm -hmm. but if we don't keep his commandments, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's like we've, we've rejected his love. Right. He's still there but we're not, we're not receiving it. Is it more that? I, I don't think so, because I think what we're talking about is distinctions in the way his, his love is, is manifested, 
Okay. You can also look at Exodus 20 and it's um, uh, or Jude 21, and it, there's a conditionality there. Uh, Caleb, were you gonna? Yeah, I was just gonna. It makes me think of Psalm where David had sinned, right? He came right. to God, restore to me the joy of my okay, salvation. Okay, good. He hadn't lost his salvation. Right. He had lost the joy of it. He lost right. that feeling of connection right. to God because he knew he had sinned yeah. against him. So, yeah. And that's a, a good way, I think, to, to think about it because, um, you know, sin's there, but if we have, if conviction permeates our life, if we're always convicted, there's something very wrong, right? So, yeah, we, we sin. There's a balance there, yeah. and you're right. You can take it either, either way too far. So we can let the conviction, um, the conviction of our, of our sin override the fact that we're new creations and treasured possessions and um, who we are in Christ. And if we are just, every minute of every day, if we're convicted of our sin just constantly, we have no joy in Christ. We don't really understand what he accomplished in our uh, you know. I understand the, that our, our position and our sin mm-hmm. affects our relationship. Yes. Like, level, I guess, in the word broken fellowship, okay, and I'm, I'm not, that, and that's fair enough. It, it might be bad wording. Um, I, I, I've I, just heard lots of teachings, like, over my life, especially sure. like a legalistic Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a quick, quick story. I, back in 2005, 2006, um, I was going to the College of Biblical Studies. And I had just studied, started studying biblical counseling. And um, w- w- what I would always say is, you know, biblical counseling is like discipleship on steroids, okay? And one of the things that you, we had to do was to kind of look at ourselves, do a lot of self-evaluation and understanding, you know, what sin is, what love and forgiveness is, and, and all these things, and really, you know, break these things apart, right? So one morning, I was on my, on my way into, into work, and I looked across the street, and there was somebody um, that had pulled over, they had a flat tire, um, and I'm like, well, I should help them. You know, Good Samaritan thing kind of popped in. I, I should help them. And I knew that I should help them. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm late for work, so I'm, I'm going to get to work, okay? So I kept on trucking. Um, by the time I got on the freeway, I really regretted that decision because I was so overwhelmed with conviction of denying you know, the prompting of the Spirit, however you want to word it, um, that I absolutely positively am convinced that I sinned because I did not stop to help that person, okay? And so what I realized on my way into work, it, every little thing that occurred, um, I was convicted. It was a steady stream of conviction. 
And what I, I kind of feel like, and again, kind of feel like, I'm not saying this dogmatically, is that God kind of lifted the veil up a little bit to let me know exactly, not exactly, but because I, I would die, but give me an idea of how sinful I was from a moment-to-moment basis, right? And I feel like a part of his grace, a big part of his grace, is not letting us experience that because you can't function when your, your sin is constantly in front of you. I mean, I was just so convicted by it. And, you know, and so it's, but it's not as if we need to take sin in a flippant way, but we have to put sin in the appropriate place. And Christ, the work that he did on the cross is number one, you know, and, and if all we're thinking about is our sin um, and all we're, we're constantly convicted all the time, then there's something wrong. We, we, we're either rebelling or we don't really understand what Christ accomplished on the cross. Well, let, let me go back here. You, you, somebody? Yeah. Yeah. about repentance and that was one of the things that we talked about is yeah. you know when Christ when God says return to me and I will return to you right. there is this aspect like what Caleb said that our sin has broken in a sense yeah. the kind of relationship we can enjoy mm-hmm. when we repent of our sins and so there's that peace and the joy and those mm-hmm. things that um, we enjoy with our father when we have yeah. that quick repentance yeah. kind of thing um, the same thing like you talked about with your kids but there's a there's, there's just a, a different kind of way we experience God's yeah. love rather than his discipline, which is also love. But when we're sitting and going astray, we have that, like you felt mm-hmm. in the way to work, just that oppression of yep, yep. being disciplined in a way. And there's that discipline that comes from that breaking of fellowship. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Good. I well, we'll say. I, I hope everybody heard that. <laughs> All right. Um, so, great. I love questions like this. Um, so five ways. So intra-Trinitarian love, loving providence for all creation, love for the fallen world, unconditional love for the elect, and conditional love for the elect. Okay. Now, what happens when we overemphasize one of these at the expense of all the others? Right. So let's look at that. If we take intra-Trinitarian love, the love for God. Um, I'm sorry, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. If we elevate that at the expense of everything else, okay, then what happens is we begin to um, remove the love that God has for humanity. And we look at God as this, this, this being out there that can never be, uh, never be satisfied, never be appeased. He, he doesn't, um, he, he becomes a wrathful, um, distant God. He becomes the God of the Muslims, you know? And so we have to understand that, yes, God loves the Father. father the, the Father, I'm sorry, the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. But we also have to understand that God loves us, and it is, it is real, okay? Were you going to say something? Yeah, I mean, if Trinitarian love was all that God had, he yeah. would not have sent his Son. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so good, yeah. So that's what it looks like if you um, overemphasize intra-Trinitarian love. So loving providence for all of creation. If you elevate that, 
I don't know, you become some kind of, maybe a druid or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you lose sight of the yeah, you lose. Yeah, you lose sight of. Uh, well, that's actually the next one, but you, lo- you lose sight of the uniqueness of humanity, and you look at a lot of the folks in these um, ecology movements these days. Um, they look at humanity as being a cancer on 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 the earth, and the earth is this organism, right? Well, if you say, okay, God loves creation and mankind is nothing unique, then yeah, we're we're a blight on the on the um, on the planet. Um, love of the fallen world gets back to what um, I think Hannah said. It's, you have a universalism um, where it doesn't matter if you if you trust Jesus or not. Um, God loves everybody the same. It's the universal fatherhood and love of God. Okay, um, unconditional love of of the elect or unconditional love for the elect, and it's exclusively for for the elect gets into something that Bruce actually asked about or a comment that you made probably three or four um, weeks ago. But um, it makes me think of uh, the Hasidic Jews in Israel who don't even believe that um, we have souls. They don't even think that we're people, that we're human, we're subhuman, we're dogs, okay? That's the sort of thing that you come up with. If, if people um, elevate the unconditional love for the elect over everything else, then it's like, okay, there's God's people, and then there's the garbage, okay? And that's a horrendous way to, to look at it. And then finally, if you take the conditional love for the elect and base everything, um, the love of God, on our performance and whether or not we uh, follow the law, then guess what? You end up with legalism, okay? So all five of these have their own damaging consequences if we elevate them above the others at the expense of the others, okay? So there has to be a balanced view. And so if somebody says to, you know, if they're evangelizing and they say, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, let's set that second phrase aside for a minute. Yeah, God loves them, but he doesn't, we don't know that God loves them in the same way that he would love his elect because they may be elect, they may not, Okay? Cool. All right, we're a little bit over. Um, I enjoyed that. If you've got any questions, you can come up um, afterwards. Sir, can you? Sure, I can. Cool. Father, thank you that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. And there, there's no greater love that you could have shown us. And uh, we thank you for the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. Help us to abide in your love, Father. Help it to be reflected in our actions toward others, that we would glorify you and draw others to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.